If I could add a third reading to us this morning, it would have been Exodus 20, verse 7, which says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which I think is a good summary of what all of these texts are ultimately pointing at. Now, worship and spirituality that is focused on external things rather than internal, rather than the matters of the heart, is dead religion. It is worthless. It is not looked upon favorably with God. And it is regretfully widespread, even today. And its cause is often because people take the eyes of their heart off of the things that matter and spend most of their time focused on things that really don't. That's dead religion. And that's really what this text is ultimately focused on. And I hope perhaps we could receive this warning ourselves as we begin to unpack it, as we jump back in to our text, beginning in verse 34 of Matthew 14. Where just to review, it said, And when they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around to that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. <laughs> now, Gennesaret, by the way, is it's not really a town or a city. It's, it's, a, it's a region, kind of like how all the towns right here on the bayfront are considered the bayshore area. You know, so Gennesaret was kind of this region, this fertile farmland region is really what this area was. And since so many people were imploring him just to touch the hem or fringe of his garment, it's reasonable to conclude that the incident of Jesus healing someone who reached out to him and just touched the hinge of his garment in Matthew 9, the word has gotten out about that. Word is getting out about Jesus. And people are excited. People are curious. People are wondering if these incredible claims they're hearing about are true. But it's not only good intention, good intentions of people seeking out to hear about Jesus, as we'll find out in the next chapter. But whatever the case might be, as people are coming for all kinds of reasons, Jesus isn't asking questions. As always, he had compassion on everyone who came to him and asked for that healing. He healed anyone who came to him in faith. And what I find amazing is that normally when you're around a sick person, you're the one that gets sick. You hang around a sick person, you get sick. But when a sick person hung around Jesus, they became well. I can't help but to think there's an amazing correlation there. That when you're a sick person approaches Jesus, they became well. The gospel has this way of turning everything backwards. Sickness doesn't work the way it normally does. And lo and behold, even religion doesn't work the way religion usually works. You see, when we think about religion, that's people reaching their hands up to God, using their good works to attain his favor. The Bible teaches the opposite of that, that we have God's grace, his unmerited, unearned favor. And instead of us reaching up with our good works to him, hoping that he would pay attention to our cries, no, he reaches down to us and redeems us, not because we've earned it, 
but because of his steadfast love towards us, that he offers that. It's not about our works, which is the bedrock of every other religion, but trusting in what Jesus has already done on the cross for you, which is the central teaching of Christianity, the central teaching of the Bible. However, the religious leaders of this time as with many others who are still stuck in their ways, didn't know how to process this grace because everything was so backwards from how they were used to approaching God. And they didn't know how to respond correctly as we pick back up in verse 1 of chapter 15 that says, And then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. (laughs) Which, by the way, this has nothing to do with hygiene and a lot to do more with other things as we're about to unpack. But let's start with somewhere more, a more fundamental block first. In first century Israel, where would the highest educated, most influential scribes and Pharisees be located? Jerusalem, of course. It's the center of everything. It's their big city. So, which begs the question, now, why would these hyper-influential Pharisees and scribes travel about 90 miles from Jerusalem to the Gennesaret region, through some pretty rough terrain, by the way, just to see Jesus? That's a good question. And they did this not because they wanted to hear more about what Jesus had to say. No, they, they were... They were looking for a reason to discredit Jesus. Jesus was a threat to their legalistic ways. They were tired of hearing him turn everything around every time he opened his mouth. Him publicly embarrassing them and correcting their teachings. They were jealous of him as Jesus is becoming more and more popular. He's around the apex of his popularity at this time. And they even tried <laughs> labeling Jesus as being as ministering in the power of Satan. And they still couldn't stop him. So they have one last option. Send in the Marines from Jerusalem. <laughs> Send in the best of their best to find something that they could accuse Jesus of. Find something in the law that we could discredit this guy so we can stop ruining our comfortable religion. And so these guys come in, they see the way the disciples are washing their hands, and they go, all right, we got him. And you might be wondering, what on earth is the big deal here? And as I said before, this is not about hygienics. This isn't about washing your hands before you eat, you know, and they knew back then you don't, you don't eat with filthy hands that have been working out in the fields all day. They knew at least that much then, even if they didn't understand bacteriology the way we do. But here's what, but the key to understanding this is in verse 2 that says, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's an important term that he's using here. Because you, you might notice they didn't say they are breaking the law of Moses, which would have referred to the scriptures the true highest authority, but they're saying here this, the tradition of the elders they are breaking. This is the the traditions of influential rabbis that have been passed down over the ages. 
is what's really being talked about here. And part of their traditions, in one of their most popular works, they were taught to build a a wall around the law to protect it. They were taught. Again, this is their traditions. And which probably meant to uphold it, uphold the law, pass it down, implement it, make sure people are following the law, which isn't a bad idea. But over time, it became a started to take on a much more dangerous meaning. Here's what it meant to their mind. It meant, oh, we need to make the law even higher and even harder to break. So if, to make something up spontaneously, if the law said on the Sabbath day not to walk a mile, they would say, oh, no, let's make it so that you don't even walk half a mile. So this way, if you don't, if you can't even walk half a mile, you won't walk one mile and break the actual law. Which, you know, sounds good at first glance, but the problem was the way they implemented it. Because when you understand how that is, it's that making the law back from one mile to a half mile, that doesn't, that doesn't make people more righteous. That just qualifies more people to be called sinners which is exactly what takes place, as we're going to unpack in a second. And again, moving the line is safe and fine on a personal level. But when you start mandating that for other people and making that the the expectation, well, that becomes dangerous. That becomes legalism. And those of you who followed us when we went through the book of Galatians know how powerfully the Bible preaches against exactly that. But again, on a personal level, this is fine. Pastors, for instance, are mandated not to be given to wine, the Bible says. You know, in other words, don't be, drink too much and make a public embarrassment of yourself. Or minister inebriated. You know, that's the whole point of that. Which is why pastors and elders are told, you know, not to be given to much wine. Now, I personally decided, you know, I'm just going to stay as far away from that line as possible. You know, I'm not interested. And that's, that's fine for me. But if I expect that of each one of you guys... And say, oh, you can't do that. Well, that's, that's not fair. That's not right. I, I don't have the, I, I ought not to have the ability to say that. That's legalism. That's taught all throughout the scripture as wrong. I can't impose my personal traditions on you. But unfortunately, that's exactly what happened in Jewish culture in the first century. Over time, these traditions of the elders, especially those found in the Talmud, became more authoritative to the majority of people than even the scriptures themselves. That's where it becomes a problem. I've, I've seen writings of people in the first century that's, that, that were arguing that it is worse to transgress a tradition of the elders than the actual scriptures. Now that's when things become dangerous. It is always, always Always disastrous when any church, any denomination, or any person elevates their traditions above the word of God. It's always a problem. Because when you no longer have the Bible to anchor what is true, you will always end up seeing bizarre things become normative. Bizarre things become normative when you unchain yourself from the scriptures. In fact, that's why these Pharisees are having, are making such a big deal out about hand washing. Because they were teaching at that time, if you washed your hands exactly the way they were telling you to do so, you could inherit eternal life. 
just by washing your hands the right way. That's how backwards things had become at that time. Uh, furthermore, they were teaching that the reason for that was that there was this demon that would sleep on your hands when you weren't paying attention. And the only way to get rid of that demon was to wash your hands their special way. Because otherwise, if you eat with unwashed hands, oh, you're ta- you might be eat- partaking in this demon coming into you. And he's going to mess, do all kinds of things in your life. Maybe that's why you're having all these problems in your life. Nonsense. <laughs> Show me chapter and verse for that in the scriptures. (laughs) You can't, because it's not in there. Nowhere in there is anything like that. But again, even though it's something somebody just made up, since the authority of the scripture was taken away, who's going to say you can't do that? Who's to argue that it's not true? The elders are saying it's true. Who are you to argue with them? That's the problem. And this has happened time and time again throughout church history. You begin to, once you begin to understand that this is what happened as early as the first century, you begin to understand all these problems that have taken place even since throughout church history. It happened in the pre-Reformation Catholic Church, where in the absence of the authority of the scriptures, they invented things like popes and praying to the saints and indulgences and all these other strange things that you cannot point to in the scriptures. They just made it part of their tradition. And who are you to argue with the elders? It's happening today in Protestant churches that are drifting away from the authority of the scriptures and ending up doing confusing things. This is how you end up with hymns about climate change. This is how you end up in, with, uh, with you know, con- contradictory and confusing views on the atonement. <laughs> this is how you end up with churches with church signs implement- advertising every crazy political movement of the day. Many of them that contradict the scriptures. But churches come out in full force and in, in, in in support of these things, because they've elevated their traditions and their way of doing things above God's word. So now that we understand the problem, we can appreciate how Jesus approaches this, where we jump back in into verse 3, where Jesus answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Which actually, let's stop there for a second. Jesus understood something that we often forget. That, you, that whether you realize it or not, you're never answering a question. You're always answering a questioner, whether you realize it or not. And when the questioner in the Gospels was genuine, oh, Jesus was candid and gave straightforward answers. But when the questioner was a hypocrite like these Pharisees and scribes, oh, he laid into them as they deserved. Let's, let's continue unpacking this in verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, what you have, given, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So again, first thing first, Jesus sees no tension whatsoever between what Scripture actually says and these traditions. Scripture's up here, those traditions are down here. 
They're not even touching each other. There's no friction. One's obviously right and the other is wrong. Simple as that. But he does more than that. He points out, not only are they wrong in how they prioritize this, he points out their their wrongful hypocrisy in how they were using their tradition. Mark 7.11, in the the parallel passage to this one, uh, Jesus uses the technical term for what they were doing. There was a technical vow called Corbin, which was when you would declare money, items, or any kind of good as dedicated to God, as given to God. And then after doing that, it could that item, whatever it was, could only be used for sacred purposes. And a misuse of this was, started, was developing, where a son could declare all of his property Corbin, after a fight with his parents, perhaps, and therefore he didn't have to use any of his goods to aid his aging parents. Now, that's a huge problem in the first century when they don't have 401ks and pensions and social securities and IRAs and all this other stuff that we have to take care of ourselves when we get older. They didn't have that back then. You know what your retirement plan was when you were in the first century? Having a bunch of kids. So they can take care of you when you get older, the way you took care of them when they were young. That was how it worked how it worked for thousands of years. And they were using this law to get around that. Using this upside-down understanding of authority, they were using man-made tradition as a loophole to get out of what God had obviously said back in Exodus 20, saying to honor your father and mother. And rather, they're using religion to dishonor their father and mother. In this sickening way. Biblical faith, it doesn't do that. True, authentic Christianity doesn't seek out loopholes to see how you can get away with getting out of your responsibilities and looking for opportunities for the sinful flesh. You know, I've... I've heard people say, I can sin all that I want. Jesus is just going to forgive me anyway. Unaware that Paul had already settled that argument in Romans 6.1, saying, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? As a Christian, you're dead to sin. You're alive in Christ. You can't just live content with sin in your life like that. So, I mean, if that's you, if that's the attitude of your heart, I don't know you, but God does. And if that's you, stop making excuses for your sin. Repent, turn to God, and examine your heart. Because if you have a lackadaisical attitude towards sin, then you don't understand sin. You don't understand what you are doing to yourself by living with sinful tendencies in your life. Yeah, we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Me too. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody here without pointing it at myself first. But I can't live content with that stuff in my life anymore. It's it's uncomfortable, and God has called us to do that. Not to live that way. Not to be searching out for loopholes. Not using religion as a cloak for our sinful passions. So as we see, Jesus is having none of this and calls them out for exactly who they are and exactly what they're doing 
as we close out in verse 7, where he says, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What a powerful summary of exactly what their tradition had devolved into. Vanity. Vain do they worship me which is what we saw in our first reading. It's vain. Don't bring me any of this other stuff until your heart is right with me. Otherwise, your worship is vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. There's nothing to it. There's no power in it. And Jesus wastes no time for calling them what they are, hypocrites. Someone pretending to be something they're not. It's a term that meant somebody who was like in the theater wearing a mask, disguising who they really were putting on different masks, depending on who they were trying to be at that given time. These people who would have looked so pious for having all of these traditions and the appearance that they cared so much about God by how many rules they follow and how much dedication they put into following all the rules. Yet this was deplorable before God. This is the epitome of dead religion. Yeah, perhaps beautiful on the outside. What other people look at you, you might look all religious and pious and wonderful, but on the inside, it's just dead. It's like a whitewashed tomb that we will uncover as we dive deeper into the Gospels later on. But these men here, they're just offering up lip service to God. That's all. They could care less in their hearts about, about God in every other fashion. All they were doing, and they're teaching and elevating the commandments of men instead of God's word. Putting the emphasis on the rules that we make up as people and ignoring what God has actually said. That's the danger. That's, That's what Jesus is calling out specifically here. And this is a danger that anyone can fall into. Especially in a tradition like ours. People are like this all the time. I've met people like this. People, There are people out here who have maybe a better attendance record than I do in church. They're always at church, coming in church all throughout the week. They can recite all the creeds, even the long one in the back of our hymnal. They, they, they might even be serving in various committees throughout the church. But they don't have any love for God in their heart. You know, guys, I'm I'm just going to be candid. Some people love church more than they love God. I'm serious. Shocking, but it's true. There there are people that are drawn to the formality and the larger-than-life-seeming experience of coming to a place like this and the high language and the formality of our style of worship. And participating in the liturgy touches their emotions, but it doesn't touch their spirit. And there are so many people that will miss heaven by about 18 inches, which is about the distance between your head and your heart. That's how a lot of people are going to miss heaven. They have religion and they're impressed in their minds about 
well, well, the, the formalities of a church, but their hearts aren't actually moved. Their spirits aren't moved. Formality for the sake of formality can be a death trap to the actual work of the Holy Spirit in your life. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm going to go there. I'm about ready to get up and walk out the next time I'm at a church service and the pastor starts their sermon with, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. You guys have heard that before many times, I'm sure. Look, and look, I, yes, I know that's scriptural. I get that. And yes, it's certainly more eloquent and elegant than my impromptu prayers. I'll, I'll give them that. But the problem is I'm not trying or even interested in being elegant. Frankly, I'm not even talking to you guys. I'm talking to my heavenly father. Who knows that I don't talk like that? Now, which, which pastor, by the way, do you guys know that when he steps down from the pulpit still talks like that? Why is it that we speak to one another in holy places using the old King James language? And contort our voices or speak in such high heavenly tones and I speak in a chanting voice. I have never had a conversation with any of you that sounds like this. Why do we do this? Which one of you who's ever had a child, a spouse, or any friend just automatically recite something every time that you see someone? You're just, you've just become a rag doll that you pull the string in the back and you say, I love you. There's, yes, words are coming out, but they don't mean anything. That's the point. That's the kind of vanity that Jesus is addressing here. That's the kind of a vanity that we need to avoid. And as Jesus is going to emphasize in our, the next section when we pick up next week, it's not about the outward appearance. It's not about all the formality. It's about the heart. So look, guys, I, I, I've been inside some beautiful sanctuaries, awe-inspiring cathedrals of all different kinds where the church services have absolutely brilliant liturgies and everyone in the service said exactly the right words and the only thing that seemed to be missing was the Spirit of God. Spirit has left the building because everything was beautiful but everything was a performance. And not even a performance before God. It was, in, in some cases, so clearly tailored just to impress the people in the pews. To amaze people with their high language and vocabulary. But let me, let me put the shoe on the other foot for a second. Let me, let me put this from a different angle. I've also worshipped in some people's living rooms. Where, you know, they put the kids away in a hurry and the kids' toys are still out all over the place. And the guy leading the Bible study is stuttering and mumbling. They're a little bit nervous. They clearly haven't been doing it too much. But the Spirit of God is there. And there's an authenticity there. 
The world doesn't need more formality. The world doesn't need more impressive language. The world doesn't need more, um, more formal worship. It needs authenticity. It needs the Spirit of God. It needs the Spirit of God. I work in the people of God, authentically enjoying God. That's what this world needs. And I would trade in a heartbeat those beautiful cathedrals for that guy's living room. So please, my appeal to you, my friends, this morning is this. Don't get caught up in the beauty of dead religion. There is a beauty to it, but it's dead. There's nothing to it. There's no substance. So so let's be less impressed with performance and false piety. Let's see through this false humility and hypocrisy of those who love religion, love a church, but don't actually love God. And let us clearly communicate to ourselves, to each other, and to the world that we are not about these empty traditions, but that we are about his word and his spirit. That it's not about the beauty of the outside, but a relationship from the heart with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Seeking not just to pay lip service, but to enjoy him forever. May that be what is emphasized with our words and with our actions this week. Thanks be to God. Amen.